Kuja Shahani, founder of Kintsuki Consulting, also the co-founder of Metamorphosis, is a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist. And she works with multinational organizations and nonprofits around the world, including India, Hong Kong, and US. And today I get to talk to her about her DEI work. I'm so excited. Welcome, Pooja. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry, for having me here and for reaching out to have this oh. conversation. Your your background is fascinating. You've had so many careers, including being a journalist, a development practitioner, a corporate leader. And I love what you say when you say that you believe in the power of courageous questioning and co-creating more sustainable and equitable ecosystems. That's lofty, but so important. And before we actually get into your work, because I just cannot tell you how much I'm grateful for people like you who do this work, because it's so hard. I'd love you to describe your origin story, because <laughs> it's it's one that not a lot of people know about. It's, it's pretty special. So <laughs> can you share your origin story and what made you, you? Thank you. Um, yeah, it's not a story I tell often, in fact. I was born and raised in Hong Kong in 1986. My mom and dad moved here in 1976, and my dad was here a little bit before then. But from where? But from where? (laughs) Yeah, all over the world. Um, So let's go back a little bit more. Yeah. Um, So I am a Cindy, so which means that Mm -hmm. um, I'm Indian, but when India was one whole big sort of unit, including Pakistan. Um, Sindhis were part of Pakistan because that's where they lived in Sindh. So during the partition, a lot of Sindhis fled to India. Yes. And of course, we had the movement the other way where a lot of Muslims fled to Pakistan. And so there's been a lot of displacement of, in general, the Sindhi community across the world. Um, So you'll meet a lot of Sindhis who live in parts of Africa and parts of Latin America. And there's just, you'll find them everywhere. Um, And the reason you find them everywhere is because when they came to India, they didn't have a land of their own um, and they didn't really have any sort of space to go into. And a lot of them ended up living in refugee communities. Both my mother's family and my father's family moved across India and eventually found themselves in the state of Maharashtra. And from there, they continued to move. Uh, My mom's family, when she was around three, she was born in India, but she left when she was three years old and moved to the Philippines. So again, another displacement. Completely, yes. And then my father's family, as they stayed in Maharashtra and Pune for a much longer time, and then when they grew a little older, uh, in their early teens, a bunch of the brothers and sisters started to move. So a couple of them came here to Hong Kong, and a couple of them went to Panama. And my father, when he was in his early sort of late teens, 17, 18 years old, came to Hong Kong. Um, and he started to work um, in these local custom tailor shops. So in that time, during the British time, um, in the 1960s and 70s, Hong Kong was known for really tailoring some of the best suits and shirts, like really good quality suits. 
and inexpensive because the quality is yeah. good. The, the, the workmanship is brilliant. Um, yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, even, even recently people still go there to, to yes. like get the best tailored shirts. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So that's where my father learned the trade and he, he, he joined the shop and then slowly worked through the ranks and then decided to open his own business where he was now, he had a, a shop of his own uh, where he could now be an owner, an entrepreneur. Um, and he would communicate, which is really interesting for me as I grew up, but he would communicate with the local tailors in Hong Kong who were actually doing the tailoring work in Cantonese. So at the age of 17 and 18, he was learning how to speak Cantonese, um, obviously in a very thick Indian accent. <laughs> <laughs> and when I grew up, I would be like, I don't even understand what you're saying. I wonder how your tailors do that. But apparently they did. They, they all understood. Now, um, now you said, I don't even, as in like you're fluent in Cantonese. I do. Yeah. I speak yeah. fluent Cantonese more and or less. And so you're like, dude, like your Indian accent, <laughs> like I don't even understand. <laughs> exactly. Um, but you know, it always, I mean, when I was younger, I never understood. I, I would always be like, oh, dad, you've got to speak better Cantonese. But now when I'm a lot older, I'm just like, wow, wow. this man actually, who, by the way, didn't even, he didn't even graduate 10th standard, um, 10th grade. And he came here, learned a business, opened a shop communicated in a completely different language from time to time. And he did this all on his own. And I was, now I look back and I'm like, that must've taken a lot of courage. A, a lot of just, courage. Not, I mean, not to mention like all the, all the generational trauma that he was going through this whole entire time. And yeah, he came exactly. here and said, yeah, like, this is what I'm going to do to survive. This is what I'm going to do to thrive. Like it. Wow. Yeah, it's your, yeah. you know, your, immig your, your immigrant story. <laughs> like you move, you work hard, you make it right. um, somewhere. And so he uh, was in Hong Kong and my mom grew up in the Philippines the entire time. So she went to a convent educated, um, a convent school. Mm -hmm. uh, she studied till around grade 12, I think. Um, so really good English, um, mm -hmm. spoke Tagalog. And um, Tagalog, okay, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and then... Um, my parent, my my grandmother and her family decided that it was time to get some of the girls married. So she sent her to India, and within a month met my dad, who was also there to get married. So it's your typical arranged marriage situation when wow. people double age. Yes, um, and so they got married, and my mom moved to Hong Kong. Uh, so my mom, again, so you can see there's so many moments of just displacement throughout our history. And so they were in Hong Kong and I have three sisters, two older sisters and I, and so I'm the third of the three. And we all grew up in Hong Kong. Um, I was born in Hong Kong. And we kind of lived in this like really weird world where we had this Indian bubble that we grew up in because we all had to go to temples. We had to learn how to uh, speak the language, both Sindhi and Hindi. We uh, had to learn about our culture, but at the same time, we all went to local schools. So oh. you know, we grew up with Chinese friends and all of my closest friends are all Chinese and, and we were speaking Cantonese. So how many languages do you speak? Uh, right now, I wouldn't say they're all fluent, but I can get by with English, Cantonese, Hindi, Sindhi, mm, French, and Spanish. Um, again, when I look back, I think a lot of this realization has come later in my life through many years of therapy, in fact. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. That, you know, I was growing up in a world where I didn't feel me in either space. No, of course. Yeah. Um, 
And um, some of my memories and now going back, I can see the kind of discrimination that my family experienced. You know, we're not well off, we're middle class. Um, we, you know, lived based on what we earned. Uh, we all went to local schools. We all, my sisters, in fact, uh, stopped studying after 10th grade um, and started working. And <clears throat> if you look at systemic sort of discrimination and racism, I can now figure out that there were points in our lives when we were children where this is what we were experiencing, but we didn't have words for it. Oh, and, and you didn't know any different because that's just what exactly. everybody did. Yeah. And it was kind of accepted. It was kind of expected, uh, like uh, accepted. I hear you. you. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I remember um, I was going into a store once with two of my friends who are Chinese and we went into the store and someone, um, a saleswoman or a customer uh, looked at me and said, oh, you know, you're, you're, they, they had this term for Indians, which is, or South Asians really, which is not a very appropriate term. Um, and in, she in called Cantonese. me that. Yeah. yeah she called me that in Cantonese. And I didn't bother because I always have heard these terms and I didn't even like think about it. But my two friends were so upset and they were like, how can she call you that? And one of them like went to her and spoke to her and said, oh, you know, she's not this, she's an Indian. It's different. Um, but to me, I was just like, oh, that's not a big deal. I hear it all the time. <laughs> you know, it's well, kind of internalized. I mean, I guess it's kind of like the equivalent of Guaylo where like they say it, but they don't really realize like Guay is not a very nice yes, word, right? Exactly. But they just think of it as like Guaylo when they talk about white people. Um, exactly. Interesting. Um, yeah. And and I guess like another sort of moment for me to where I recognized that something was off was um, the schools that we went into or that we were given placements to in some sense. So given placement. Mm. in Hong Kong, uh, if you studied in the public system, you have to take these exams at uh, at the government level. Yes. And that determines which school you go into for your next piece of study. So when I was in grade six, you would have to take this exam and it was you know, you had to take it in Cantonese, math, and English. And obviously, a lot of us people who are ethnic minorities would pass English and math, but fail Cantonese, because you were taught Cantonese as if you were a native speaker in the same classrooms as everyone else. And so you wouldn't naturally pass those exams because you don't have, you know, nobody's teaching you uh, that language in the way that they would teach a a non-native speaker so we would fail those exams which it, meant that mm, sorry i'm sorry well, to interrupt but you yeah. mean like they didn't teach you as in like this is a second language for you so we're going to help you learn it this way they just throw you in it as if like well you speak it at home are you like yeah, yeah sorry but yeah so we were yeah. in a classroom like in in in, pri in primary school i guess with native speakers that. yeah yeah with native speakers we had a bunch of chinese students and a bunch of us who are like pakistanis indians filipinos all in the same classroom learning the same things mm -hmm. um and mm -hmm. so obviously we failed all of that <laughs> um and because it's the government system when you take this exam if you if you don't uh pass all three, your accumulative grade is a lot lower. And therefore, you are then placed in a secondary school, which is grade seven to grade 12, by the government. And so you would find a lot of ethnic minorities end up in, grade, in, in schools, which at that point of time were called um, band five, band four schools, which are probably the schools that have not a lot of funding, um, a lot of overcrowded classrooms, good teachers, but you know, not excellent teachers, not enough resources uh, for the best education. And so both my sisters actually ended up going to those schools. And then they stopped studying 
after grade 10 and then, you know, they didn't go to university. None of that happened. But for me, things changed because by the time I was going to school, it was 1997 and the handover was taking place at that point of time. And something was happening where other schools, especially schools that were in the top tier schools, were willing to accept ethnic minority students if they did another private exam in the school. And if you passed those exams, they would consider allowing you to come, like enter the school. But it was dependent on how well you did in those private entrance <laughs> exams. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, you know, my, my sisters were both like, no, we're going to make her get into one of those schools. And so we went and we applied to a bunch of those schools, all of them convent schools, all girl convent schools, really. Yeah. Um, and we, I was called back into one of them for an exam. And I remember there were eight of us, all ethnic minorities, only eight sitting in that room in the library doing our exams. And at the end, I was the only one who got in. And I remember going to the registration office to just register. And the woman looked at my mom and said, you know, she only got in because she barely passed math. And the others didn't even pass math. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, like I kind of nearly failed math. That means like I'm not even good enough to be here. And that, that was probably a, a, a limiting belief that got planted by yes. someone. And really, you belong, you more than belong there. But that comment probably caused a lot of like, oh, I, you know, should I be here? And Exactly. Should oh, I be here? Do I deserve to be do here? Do I deserve and, to be here? Oh. <laughs> it's still a very vivid memory. Like, I remember what, what the woman was wearing, how her hair looked like. I remember all of it. Um, And so you can see like that one thing, that one particular difference in my sister's life and my life made a huge difference into the choices I made over the course of my life and the opportunities I had. So I was the only non-Chinese in a class of 240 students. Um, I became instantly popular because I spoke Cantonese. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I got all of these great opportunities, leadership positions, you know, school prefects, um, then applied to other places and then kind of went from there, got a scholarship to study in a boarding school in India, got a scholarship to study in the U.S. And then, you know, just the doors opened. Um, But, you know, this pressure, I think one of the things that that has come up in therapy for me, and I, you know, I want to share this because I feel like when you're young and you feel like you don't belong and you don't deserve to be there, you're constantly working very, very hard to prove that you do belong, right? And that means for what, 20, 25 years, years of your life, you just kept working and working and working and never once acknowledging that, oh, I, I, this is, I do belong here. I, I deserve the spot. It's my right to be here. Um, and very strange you know, I, feeling. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. And it's, it's this feeling that you're like, oh gosh, I don't have to prove anymore. <laughs> you know? And, and I think that a lot of high achievers are high achieving, not necessarily driven by the, you know, oh, look, I feel so good achieving. It's really, I have to do this to prove my worth. Like there, yeah. it's a different drive. Oh yeah. And I, remember, I remember telling my therapist too, when I said, I, we were going through this process and I said, well, it's helped me for so long. Why should I not hold on to it? It's got me to this place where I can do these things that I'm doing. And she asked me this question and she said, well, is it adding value to your life right now? 
And I was like, hmm, interesting. Pause. You're like, you're like, hang on, hang on. You're sorry. This is woven in my DNA, lady. So, you know, like, let me, let me just pause for a second. Um, kudos to all your accomplishments. Um, but also kudos for looking at this question. Like, does this belief and drive still serve you today? So how did you end up answering that question? <laughs> Come to the conclusion that it actually this certain belief that I have is not helping me anymore. In fact, it's becoming a, a barrier yeah. Uh, yeah. for me to progress in this next kind of work that I'm doing and to get it to the next level. Beautiful. And yeah, but you know, I, I often sit there and think, gosh, how many people like me have this in their lives till now? Many. You know, how many of them carry that burden and that sense of, you know, not being whole? Oh, ouch. I, like I have tears in my heart right now when you said that. Actually, I've had tears bubbling just as you were talking, but just not being whole and that drive to fill and that drive to become whole. And so this drive then, what is it making you do? Or what, what did it make you do? And how did shifting your drive bring you to where you are now? Unconsciously, I've been curious about how people make decisions and how we can change mindsets. Very unconsciously, I think that's what I've been moving towards. So I started my career as a journalist and I was very recently going through all this material I have in Hong Kong. It's all my childhood, you know, report cards and things like that. And I was looking at all of these articles that I'd written and a lot of them was really questioning uh, belief systems that we have or ideas that we have or trying to just bring some sense into political beliefs that we have. And then I moved on um, and decided that while I really like telling stories and having a platform to share stories, journalism was constraining for me. You'd think that being a journalist is going to, you know, allow you to go out there and question the world and write the right stories, you know, and, and be supported and like, Ah, okay. But ironically, it, like that's so mind blowing that you said that <laughs> ironically, this is not what's going to help you do that. <laughs> I'll tell you this realization I had was, um, I was interning with the BBC in DC in 2008. And it was the Obama Hillary, the Hillary um, election that was going on. And I had never been in, in this kind of space before like mainstream journalism, like just blew my mind of what was happening, the kind of questions people were asking. And I remember this one moment where we, uh, someone had committed suicide and we were asked to go and stand outside the family's home to get, uh, you know, their reactions. A, I was extremely uncomfortable with that, but B, we were waiting there and obviously nothing happened and we came back. But the whole discussion in the newsroom and the meeting was how do we tell what happened in two minutes and how do we tell it to this particular audience? And I thought, gosh, there's so much to the story besides two minutes. <laughs> like, I don't want to tell the story because I will be just taking out everything and I'm going to be, in fact, bringing it down to two minutes of what I think people need to hear. <laughs> you know, I'm not like... It's it's completely subjective, obviously. I think that's and I was like, oh my god, this is not right. I can't do this. Um, and that was kind of the moment where I was like, yep, this may not be for me. And then I, yeah, and then I kind of decided to think about how else can I still do journalism and storytelling. And I found myself in um, 
in this fellowship program in India, uh, up north in a in this state called Uttar Pradesh, which is UP, um, in a city called Kanpur. So it's one of the most populous states, but also relatively poor compared to the rest of India. Um, and I was working with a nonprofit organization to set up a community radio station uh, that would benefit the villages in a particular area. And so that kind of fulfilled my thirst for still being involved in storytelling and journalism, but it opened up another avenue, which was I wanted to kind of teach people how to tell their own stories and to provide that space. You know, that kind of made me realize that, okay, I don't want to be the one telling the story, but I would love to create a space where other people can tell their own stories in the way that they want to tell it. You know, from there, I returned back to Hong Kong after being away from home for a while. Is that where you started Metamorphosis though? No, not yet. Oh. No, Metamorphosis is probably two years old. <laughs> okay, so that, so that, that was where it planted for you like the story yeah mm, okay sorry I jumped the gun sorry okay so (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then actually from there what it led to was uh I got exposed into diversity equity and inclusion work because when I was in the villages I definitely saw a lot of injustice and I saw it uh in a very different sense um compared to what I'd seen in Hong Kong Mm -hmm. and so this need to kind of how do we create experiences that are fair for everyone. Okay, and so this is this is the birth of your DEI work. Yes. And this is I hope you'll tell us eventually how this led you to the Change Makers program and what that is. I will. So basically yeah. what happened was I started to work with an organization in Hong Kong um, and then they asked me to move to India to set up their diversity, equity, and inclusion construct consulting practice. Wow. Okay. Um, and then I learned a lot, a lot of the things that I've learned, I've learned on the job, to be honest. Yes. I'm not a human resource professional. Mm-hmm. I don't have that background. Um, I've never done business before, not my background either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of learned on the job. And as I was doing this work, I found that I was quite passionate about it. And I saw an opportunity to bring people together from very different sectors to problem solve, uh, to question, you know, what's not working uh, for others? Uh, Where are some of the injustices in the systems, uh, injustices in the practices, and decided that, okay, I'm going to spend more time in this space, and then joined Goldman Sachs in Bangalore and learned how it's done internally in an organization. By that time, I'd spent maybe 10 10 years in the DEI world in general. And I was starting to get a bit frustrated because Mm. I found that we had been doing this kind of work for so long and nothing was changing. Pause for one second. So you've been doing this for 10 years and you you went in there saying, I see injustice. I see that it's not the fault of the people. Like, it's not like, oh, well, you know, you're poor because you don't work hard, right? It's, It's, wait a minute, there's something systemic about this. So you're, you're yeah. in this. And so at this point in time, right now, you're saying, wait a minute, am I, is what I'm doing even changing anything? That's, that's the question for you. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's the kind of question, like, are we just doing this because it's kind of like this, uh, it's a good branding opportunity. Are we really doing this because we want to change something and we want to make uh, the system fairer? Is there an incentive for organizations to be doing this? Um, and what are those incentives? And so I was kind of in this loop, and this is now where in, in my life right now, that would be around 2019. 
Um, oh, right before COVID. <laughs> yes, right before COVID. So I left oh. my job right yeah. before COVID and was like, I need to step back because I'm stuck in this neurotic loop in my yeah. head and I'm seeing yeah. all of us as practitioners stuck in this loop. Wow. Um, so I need to step back and I want to really think about what is it that I want to do and how do I want to contribute to this kind of work, uh, which really then brought about metamorphosis uh, with a dear friend of mine who also works in the DEI space and is an org psychologist. And we had very similar views about this kind of work. And I remember telling her that, you know, I want to do something for practitioners. I want to do something for people who uh, are want to do this kind of work in organizations. They're passionate about it. Um, because there isn't enough out there. Like there aren't no certification programs. There are no degrees on this. Um, it's changing so fast. Um, and everyone who I had met uh, were kind of just learning on the job. <laughs> you that's know, true, and, and we just, yeah. yeah, we're just like, you know, what do we do now? What do we do now? And I don't know. I felt like this, this lack of community, I guess. Oh, and so you created it. Yeah, so then we both decided that using both of our different experiences and our contacts, we would uh, develop this program um, called the, the DEI Changemakers Program. And it took us almost a year or two even to just think about what we wanted to do, how we wanted to do it, uh, what else was out there. Um, and we realized that what we wanted to do with this program specifically besides teaching the basics and teaching uh, org change and what that means, we wanted to give our participants an opportunity to link the work that they're doing with their personal lives because so much of DEI is personal. Um, and we, the way we do our work comes back from our own histories. So do we know what that is? Do we know those stories? <laughs> you know, how do we link that? Um, and the second thing that we wanted to do was not just to talk about what programs you can do, what hiring things you can do, but we really wanted to start talking about power privilege systemically and how it's embedded into the system. So as DEI practitioners, you're, gonna, you're not just looking at people, you're looking at the system that has been created over years. <laughs> Decades in some cases. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Century for some of the other countries. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is really powerful. So you're talking about power and privilege systemically. Power and privilege systemically. And it's not just looking at people. It's not just looking at people. It's looking at all the forces that have set up the environment, the political landscape, the structures. I think. On the one hand, it's empowering to say, well, it's not me. But on the other hand, it's, it's very um, intimidating because it's not just me. <laughs> it's like, like what, what are we actually facing? <laughs> exactly. And uh, what are the various mindsets that we're facing? Mind, what are the mindsets. various traumas? Mm. Like, you know, so you said, what are the various traumas we're Trauma. facing? Uh, Absolutely. Right. Well, what I was going to say was my, my thing right now is that I believe that privilege comes from a healthy nervous system. If you have mm -hmm. a healthy nervous system, you will have mindset, you will have energy, you know, you will not be triggered all the time. If you have a healthy nervous system, you know, you are privileged. And now when you think about it, who are the people who can have healthy nervous systems? Well, you, okay. if, if you have money and time to like heal yourself, or if you never went through the trauma, 
you have a healthy nervous system. Like it literally yeah. for me boils down. Yeah. To that. Yeah. Sorry, it's like ahead. that hierarchy of needs, right? Like completely, complete uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think out of all of this, as we were developing, and I think DEI practitioners kind of have their own evolution as well. Yeah. One of the things we realized um, was equity was a missing piece of all of this. We were talking about diversity. We were talking about inclusion, but you, can't really bring fairness in until you really relook at the processes, the practices, and the policies that already exist. And that's your equity. And we were missing all of that. <laughs> you know, we weren't doing that kind of work. And so we, we thought that, okay, we need to start this conversation. Um, and we need to start kind of shifting that lens slightly. You do audits? Is that part of also the work that you do? Like you do? We do, yeah. Do you DEI audits as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Audits, um, even questions like, you know, when we make a decision, like simply questions, asking questions, which is courageous questioning, right? Like, who are we centering when we design something? You know, who's at the center of that design? Exactly. <laughs> I think questions really help us. You know, the, the, you know, the thing that they say about privilege, right? Like the only time that you know that you actually have privilege is when you're in situations when you don't have privilege. There was a fascinating video about um, a professor. I wish I remember her name and I wish I remember when it was, but it was like in the 50s or 60s. Like it was, it was a long time ago. And she asked her students, you know, do you think that there's discrimination against uh, Black people in the U.S., right? And, and they said no. And then she said, okay, well, how many of you want to be treated like a Black person in the U.S.? And none of them raised their hand. And it's like, well, then, you know, if we ask that question, you don't see it. But if we ask this question, then you see it, which is exactly to your point. And so if you don't mind, I'm, I'm curious now because we kind of touched on this, but this is very hard work. So DEI work um, is very high, hard work. And especially given the past couple of years, uh, also given the high demand uh, of need, of, of requiring practitioners in the DEI world um, and sometimes creating jobs where there may not be a support system around them. They may be saying, we just need, we, you know, we're not required to have someone come in and do DEI work. Um, when you and I sort of talked before the recording, you said that DEI practitioners are experiencing burnout and stress. So tell me more about that and, and what you think is happening and what needs to happen. Yeah, I think so. Um, actually, this is a short research study that came out um, just a few weeks ago by a woman called Dr. Sam Ray, I think, R-A-E. And she opened up uh, the study to DEI practitioners and asked them to fill the questionnaire out. And what she found in that study was that there was a high percentage of DEI practitioners experiencing burnout. Um, and this, I think, if anecdotally, this this number is definitely aligned with the real experiences of DEI practitioners. But another piece of study, an article that I read a couple of months ago also talked about how most DEI practitioners kind of stay at a role for maybe two years. So there's a high turnover. And obviously, there's a lot of reasons for why this could be happening. But I think one of the reasons is that you, from my own experience, again, this is my personal just experience with DEI roles is that you are constantly figuring out what's your responsibility towards the organization and what's your responsibility towards um, individuals who come from underrepresented communities. 
and how do you balance that out <laughs> you know um i and it's hard it's hard and I'll, a very simple example um from my own experience is i remember there was an individual who uh an employee with a disability um who had around wasn't uh completely uh visually impaired but had a certain percentage uh but we had these training systems that all of them needed to complete and our training system wasn't compatible with the screen reader this individual was using and so this individual couldn't complete it and so i remember sitting down with this individual and helping them go through the training so i would respond in the computer while while they're they're able to listen to what the, what it's saying and it took us like i don't know an hour and a half took us quite a long time and i thought this isn't right like we've hired someone for a role but yet the infrastructure around this person isn't supporting this person from being isn't supporting this person to become successful and so i started this conversation internally and was like trying to find out what we could do how do we make these trainings uh modules that we have compatible and it was just you know questions and talking and um i had at one point in time i hit hit this roadblock where people who were making decisions about this uh were saying things like oh there are only seven people in our entire global organization who would need this um that's a lot of investment to make we don't have that kind of money and i remember being like okay how do i even like how do i even get into this conversation now like what what do i do and i i remember really struggling with my responsibilities my accountability as a dei practitioner it's my responsibility to ensure that this person has um the right support system the right infrastructure but it's also my responsibility to be aware of the resources that an organization has and what they're willing you know <laughs> to get them to that point and you know what are we able to spend on what are we not able to spend on and i was really uh, torn and sad felt like a hypocrite i felt all kinds of things and well, there was a lot going on there mm. yeah and i i remember being like oh my god like i mean this person is going to have a terrible experience Mm-hmm. and this person eventually left the organization in a year or two because obviously they kept getting rated poorly and performance wasn't great because one of the reasons is the infrastructure wasn't there to support this person and i was just like this is horrible <laughs> um and i remember just feeling like you know pretty useless like i can't like i'm here and i have a seat i have a voice and i can't do anything about this <laughs> so mm-hmm. the trauma that a person would experience going through this where the infrastructure isn't set up for them means that it's much more difficult for them to succeed within the organization and yet at the same time an organization is trying to run you know huge um businesses and what not um that support you know 99.9% or what what you know like they 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 have to run uh they have to be able to invest in things that work i think there's like a 2080 rule like most most organizations would say you know we we want to do we want to do things that support 80% of yeah. people right um and so at some point in time they have to make a decision of oh well you're telling me this is going to cost us you know i don't know a million dollars to to you know make this system wide um and but that just means seven people in our organization will feel less othered and for them that's not a price that they want to pay 
And this is what's going on regularly all the time. And so all the people who are in that other percent, that's what they're facing every day. Yeah. Everywhere. Everywhere. Um, If you're a minority in any form, you are like, like, I think your needs are not uh, respected, um, dismissed often. Um, And you're not part of the majority who A, makes the decisions, has a seat at the table. you know, has power. Like, it's just, it's like kind of this, uh, it's like a battle that seems to be one that you can never win. And you have to make choices along the way to figure out what you want to do. Um, and yeah, and I think DI practitioners face this daily because they talk to, they communicate, they build relationships with people who are experiencing this daily. Um, and at the same time, they're working with leaders who have access are able to make decisions and this sort of conundrum that they find themselves in is every single day. (laughs) And one of the books that actually helped me after I left to kind of process what, what, what I was going through was, um, is this book by Lily, Lily Zhang. Oh, you mean the comedian? Uh, no, 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 no sorry. A, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, they are a DEI strategist, um, mm. sort of very active on LinkedIn. Um, and they wrote a book called the ethical sellout. And I love that book, the, Eth- the ethical sellout, because it kind of made me understand how at each point of time I was really thinking about my decisions and my thoughts through this lens of, you know, I'm going to sell out right now. I'm going to make this decision, but I know that this is probably the best thing I can do in the situation that I find myself in. It's hard. It is hard because if you are constantly, I'm going to say, shaming yourself for being a sellout, you know, that's very hard to keep moving because it doesn't feel like you're moving the needle. It doesn't feel like you're making a change. Whereas from the outside, you know, what I see is here are people who are making a change every day. Like, you know, I see your work as uh, you're present, you're out there, you're listening, as in, you know, with people who are coming to you and saying, this doesn't work for me as a minority, this doesn't work for me, you know, the systems don't work for me. Um, You're providing a first place to validate, yeah, indeed, this, this experience doesn't work for you. That might be the first time that someone actually gets validation you know, for that. And when someone has validation, you know, they can be more empowered because they're more confident and comfortable in their own judgment of, yeah, this doesn't work. Right. And just even allowing some people a little bit of validation and empowerment means that you make a change in their lives that you don't necessarily see because you're not changing the systems yet. Right. But if enough people hear it, if enough leaders can see it and understand it, change can happen. I think what people fear is unsustainable change, mm-hmm. you know? So th- these leaders might say, well, I can't make that change. It's not sustainable because we don't have $7 million to invest in this every year. Whatever it is, you know, it is that they that they want to change. They, they don't want it to be unsustainable for their whole system. But I believe that when I see your work, I see little changes. I see, you know, a gradual change. I see like, it's not a Titanic going at a, um, well, it is like a, t- a Titanic going towards the iceberg. And the shifts that you have to make are so slow because it's such a big you know, like this is the, you're, you're talking about big things. You're talking about big things. 
So you have to make tiny, 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 you know, so I see your work as making tiny, 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 tiny shifts consistently over time. Yeah. And I think what you've shared and described is so accurate. And the other (laughs) side of it is that seeing tiny shifts um, take place within the system. So when you're inside, you know that you're probably making some shifts. Oh yeah, you are. Yeah. But when you're, when they're so tiny, I know. Yeah. It can seem like it's nothing. Well, especially compared to what needs to be done. Right. Because if you're, if you're looking at, you know, this is a problem that's this big, a hundred, and I've just made a 0.005% change. Like it doesn't feel like anything. Right. Um, But a friend of mine once said to me, you know, imagine that you're on an airplane. Okay. And you're going to fly from, you know, New York um, to New Delhi. Okay. Um, And it's a pretty far flight. Okay. Um, It's very important that your, the degree, uh, you know, of your aim is, is accurate. So if you just made like a 0.05 degree shift in where you're pointing, you're not going to land in that city. <laughs> you're going to land somewhere way out, out. Like, so when you think of a small, tiny shift now, over time, it becomes a bigger change as you're moving <laughs> forward. You're going to land, you're going to land in Brazil instead, you know? <laughs> oh, I thank you for that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So it may seem like you're, you're, cause you're in it. If you, you, if you all, your DEI, you know, you folks are in it, you're zoomed in to the work that you're doing. And so those shifts seem so small, but over time they become bigger. They become, you know, like the the divergence of where the organization could have gone. The tiny shifts make a big difference over time. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's the hope, right? Like we, uh, I was speaking to someone earlier who told me this and they were like, gosh, do I have to keep doing this? Do I have to keep calling people out about the language they use? And I was just like, yeah, kind of. I think that's what we, like, you know, it is what you are doing and we can only hope that someone will be, will, will, will remember that. Um, and yeah. I, mm-hmm. and I do think that what we, rely on as DEI practitioners and people who are change makers is the hope that one day things will be different. Yeah. And I think that that hope is important. And I'm also curious, you know, when they're being called out, when, when they are doing the calling out, um, does how you do the calling out change the impact? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I think DEI practitioners are test players Um, they're strategizing at every corner. I agree. And you're going to figure out what move you're going to take so that you can call out someone in the most respectful, but impactful, 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 like, you know, very effective. You have to be effective. Um, when I was doing this inside an organization as a consultant, you don't actually see that that much because Mm -hmm. you're outsider Mm -hmm. and you're coming in with a certain level of expertise and you're you're advising. Yeah. That's different. Yeah. And when you're inside, it's very different because you're working with people, there are power dynamics at play. There are people with very different motivations, you know, very different things that are at play. And I found myself often being like, okay, what would motivate this leader? (laughs) Maybe this leader is motivated by, uh, you know, public speaking and being seen as, as this particular kind of leader. So how do I now coach this leader with that in mind? You know, powerful. 
Um, um, or I would say, okay, this leader actually doesn't like me very much. You know, this leader is a bit like intimidated by me. So maybe I don't go tell this leader anything. Maybe I should tell a peer of that leader to have a conversation with that leader. You know, I don't need to be the one doing the work, but I can equip other people to be like, I think this le- this leader, you know, would find it helpful if you shared X, Y, Z with them. Wow. So what you're saying, it does matter how you do it, because let's say a leader didn't like you, um, you going to tell them wouldn't make it better. No, in fact, I might lose them completely. Yeah, that's amazing. I am so in awe of your work. I am even more in awe now that we've had a chance to talk and I can't wait to share this with, you know, with our listeners. Um, Thank you for thank what you, you Sherry, do. Thank you, Sherry, for this opportunity. Like, I really thank you. No, thank you for what you do. Like, thank you for what you do. And now I have one last question. Okay. Um, mm. And it's funny because now I'm like, maybe I should like rename the podcast. But my podcast is um, Sandwich Parenting. And the reason why it's mm-hmm. Sandwich Parenting is because I see this kind of change being done when parents are parenting their kids. Because by the time you're an adult, it's hard, you know, like you're, you're, you're well within a system, uh, within systemic situations that are hard to change. But if we, if we had parents who could uh, plant ideas with the kids and support um, their understanding in this space, you know, I think that we can make a better world. Like, uh, like you said, I can only hope, but that's, you know, but that's, but that's my goal uh, for sandwich parenting. We might have grown up a certain way and we might've been parented a certain way, but now we're relooking at that and, you know, trying to parent the next generation differently. Mm. So I, I see your work, the DEI space as very important for, uh, for our children to understand. So as a DEI practitioner, as someone who has had to learn it all on your own, uh, as someone who's had to face all of these things as a, as a child and now, you know, deal with the world, whether it's organizational, political, you know, systemic, if you could give one piece of advice to parents who may have had trauma of their own, they're trying to raise responsible, resilient adults of the future, you know, with your DEI filter, what would that piece of advice be? And I think it starts with self-awareness. Love it. I think I would encourage parents uh, to use the current conversation on diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, to reflect on their own selves, on their own traumas, on their own privilege, power. And then to ask, what of those perceptions, biases, um, do I want to pass on to my children? Oh my gosh. Okay, yes. When I think about myself and the kind of parent I want to be, there are definitely certain things that I would not want to pass on to my children. 100%. (laughs) Yeah, there are definitely some traumas and some things that I would like to, I would like it to end with me. Uh, But I can only end it with me because I'm aware of how they've passed through through the generations. And now that I'm aware, I know that I have the agency to change some of it, heal some of it, whatever it may be. Um, so, yeah, I think that journey of going through uh, that experience and leveraging the current sort of conversation and trend of talking about DEI internally, you're really using that for yourself and reflecting on yourself and then asking 
or do I want to pass on to the next generation? I love that so much, Pooja. That really leaves us with so much to think about. It starts with ourselves. It starts with reflecting on our own beliefs, our own traumas, our own privilege, and our own power. And what do I want to pass on? What do I want my children to have as they face the world? Thank you so much for your time. I cannot tell you um, how much uh, I enjoyed uh, this conversation. No, thank you for this opportunity. Again, I really like I've never done this before. So I'm just like, oh, okay. (laughs) But no, thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed just one of the things I really appreciated, Sherry, about what we just did right now was your ability to rephrase and paraphrase a lot of what I was saying, because it made me be like, oh, that's, that's what I was saying. Like, you know, it made me be like, yeah, okay. This is what I really wanted to say. (laughs) And you did, you did say it. No, you did say it. And, And sometimes for me, I'm just trying to sort of clarify it in my own mind because it's so powerful and I just really want to, you know, sink into it. So Um, Thank you for sharing so much. Thank you. And good luck on the rest of the podcast. Thank you. And I look forward uh, to continuing our conversations in the future. Yes. Thank you for listening to Sandwich Parenting. Visit us at www.sandwichparenting.com for more stories and drop me a line at sherry at sandwichparenting.com.